Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son, which she bears, will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your having uh, so much to teach uh, Israel of that day, and even in our time, Lord, uh, you are the writer of all laws, and you are the creator of all that is good. So we pray that you would awaken in us a deeper understanding of why it is that you have such laws as this. Awaken our minds to understand. In Christ's name we pray and give you thanks. Amen. What I've just read is referred to as I don't know if I'll pronounce it correctly, but the Leverate, the Leverate marriage. Now, when you read that, it's, it has the name Levi in it, but it's not based on the tribe of Levi, the name of Levi. It's actually derived from the Latin, and it was the Latin word for brother-in-law. And so these are referred to as the Leverate marriages, where a brother dies and then the wife, uh, the uh, widow, marries an unmarried brother in that line. Now, we have other biblical examples of this, and the most striking one is from Genesis 38, and I'll start reading a brief story at verse 6. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord. Therefore, he killed him also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. But then this is what Judah was thinking. For he said, lest he also die like his brother's. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. So Tamar returned to her father's house, didn't remain with Judah's family. And so we know the rest of that story. As a matter of fact, Christ's lineage passes through what happened. We know that Tamar saw that Sheila was maturing to adulthood, and Judah still refused to give her to him. And so then she deceived him, pretended to be a prostitute, was impregnated by her, him, in his self-righteousness, says, take her out and burn her, and then she sends him the staff that she'd taken from him and pledged that day, 
And so he admits that she was more righteous than him in following the law. And so we know that this law that God is instituting now is something that even predates the giving of the Mosaic law. We knew when we talked about the sacrificial system a couple weeks ago that the sacrificial system predated the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law formalized this, added lots of regulations and, and precision to it, but yet it didn't institute these things as brand new things. And so then we have in our text, in Ruth, this is what Ruth said when she's attempting to tell her daughters-in-law who have lost their husbands to stay in Moab. She said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and I should bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? So this is standard practice in this time. And Naomi is pointing it out that don't wait for me. This isn't going to happen through me. And so I can't provide you a husband like what God has set up as this plan to provide for husbands from the brothers of the deceased man. This law which we now see, probably regard as odd. It strikes us as odd in our modern culture. But yet this law served two purposes, two purposes, one of which is clearly in Deuteronomy, perpetuate the line of the dead brother. What's interesting is even Ur and Onan, who were both regarded by God as evil for what they've done, even those lines God would have perpetuated. He doesn't want to see these lines die out. It also provided for the widows. These widows, and widows are often linked in with orphans, with the poor. Widows were a lower rung of the society all throughout the world for millennia. And so this was a way of providing for widows. Now let me go back to our text in Deuteronomy and uh, emphasize one of these phrases that you see in verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son. If brothers dwell together. Now, one of the commentators I read then used this to restrict the application of this rule. It's only if the unmarried brother happens to be living in the home of the deceased brother. Only then are you under obligation to marry the widow. And I really don't think that's a very fair translation of that text at all. If brothers dwell together... What it means is in community. You're in community. You're not necessarily under the same roof. You're dwelling in community with your other brothers. So one of these unmarried brothers is to step up and become the husband of that widow. Now, I want to also clarify another portion. Is if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. So you see the rule here, the rule here is not that there is to be a marriage. The rule actually forbids a marriage. So it isn't that this widow is being forced against her will to marry one of these brothers. What she is forbidden to do, however, is marry outside of the family. So then it goes on to say, her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife. And yet, each biblical example we see shows that it is the widow that is pursuing this, pursuing fulfillment of this. 
we don't see it being pressed upon an unwilling widow. We believe, I believe the widow has choice here. The widow is choosing to do this, to perpetuate the brother's line. We don't see any other examples. Now, I can't be prescriptive in that, but still, it appears to me that this is meant to protect the widow as much as it is to perpetuate that deceased brother's line. And it's not a rule that she must marry. It's a rule that she must not marry outside of the family. In other words, her role, even as the wife of a deceased man, is to perpetuate his line. And so it's just a remarkable rule that requires this. So then verse 6 goes on, And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. This was very important to God. God honored these men and women in their desire to be the root of life that perpetuates through the remainder of time on this earth. And it's not a light thing to consider that your male line dies out. And I think it's interesting that even in our culture, even here, thousands of years later, it's still important. We don't like seeing male lines die out. No son to take on your name. And yet it's very common now in the world. In India, you have very, it's very common. I didn't know this until recently, but in India, it is illegal for married couples to determine the sex of their child before birth because they know that so many babies, girls would be aborted in the womb. And so they forbid it. They forbid the detection of the baby's sex until birth. And so then hopefully the daughter will have an opportunity to live. And yet, really, in our culture still, we want to see the male lines continued. They're, and I don't think it's an unhealthy pride. I believe it's God-ordained. God wants this. He supports this. Now, I haven't yet mentioned the term that really covers this, and it's kinsman-redeemer. And so this is an aspect of the role of a kinsman-redeemer. So this is one. A brother is to marry, uh, if he's unmarried, he is to marry his uh, deceased brother's widow. That is a role of a kinsman redeemer, and it's described here in Deuteronomy 25. There is a second, and it is that when a Hebrew happens to be living near a wealthy foreigner, now they're all kind of living in Israel, they're all living under this time of Mosaic law, and yet this uh, foreigner has chosen to move here, he's living here, he becomes wealthy, and he takes on a Hebrew servant. The Hebrew is poor, and he essentially sells himself to that rich foreigner. Yet it is the opportunity and really the ultimate obligation of a kinsman redeemer of that poor Hebrew to redeem that man. Now, he's supposed to be let free at the year of Jubilee, but that could be decades from now. And so it is the role of a kinsman redeemer to redeem that person, to buy his freedom if possible. So that's the second one, escaping from bondage. A third one is that the closest in kin inherits property. And so we still go by many of these rules. If there is a son or sons, they get the property. If there are no sons in the picture, the daughters get the property. If there are no children in the picture, the brothers get the property. And so if there are no brothers in the picture, then there are other rules. Who's closely related? Uncles, nephews, that type of thing. And so... These rules of inheritance are also akin to this kinsman redeemer. Who is closest to us 
in bloodline. And then there's a fourth, which is my personal favorite, the avenger of blood. The cities of refuge were an incredible means of achieving righteousness in the land of Israel. We have nothing like it in our culture now. All evidence of it, I believe, has been eradicated over the years as we've embraced modernism. And yet, it is such a beautiful way for family to seek justice in the event of a wrongful death. And so the avenger of blood, in this case, has an opportunity as well as an obligation on the part of who died un unjustly to seek righteousness in this case. When it could be taken one of many ways. We don't know exactly necessarily what the facts were. We don't know if this murder was truly premeditated. We don't know if it was a murder. It could have just been an accidental death. But yet, the avenger of death has a role to play in seeking justice there. And then the cities of refuge come into play. But so, these are four aspects of the kinsman redeemer role, this person in Israel. We know, and I've already mentioned to you how uh, Judah and Tamar, their son is in line of Jesus. So we know we, we have this kinsman relationship through there. We know Boaz and Ruth. Uh, Ruth is, is uh, the great-grandmother of David. We know that David is in the lineage of Jesus. So we see that there is evidence of, of the kinsman redeemer at work in the line of Jesus. I want to read to you, I think Gary North puts it extremely well, in this excerpt. Now, this is a book that uh, Josh and Gary and Phil are going through. I don't know who else is going through this, but it's a 1,300-page book that is an exp exposition of the law in Exodus. On page 228, I want to read this paragraph. We know that we are in principle set free from sin, but in history our sanctification is not yet complete. Our first husband, Adam, died in slavery to sin. And we had been left behind, enslaved to Adam's ethical master, Satan. Christ, like the brother who honors the terms of the Leveret marriage, the one, the text I quoted, then married us, thereby delivering us legally out of bondage to sin. But the consummation has not yet taken place. We wait for the return of our bridegroom, who has redeemed us from the household of servitude. He did not marry us as a servant marries. We will not remain in ethical bondage. He completed his work on Calvary. The resurrection testifies to his condition as a free man. We are resurrected in him in principle, definitively set free judicially and ethically from sin as his lawful bride. But in history, we still labor under the bondage of sin. Our sanctification in history is not yet complete. We have not yet been presented as a chaste virgin before Christ. One reason why there is no marriage after the resurrection is that the church has but one husband, Christ. There will be no divided family loyalties in heaven. So, to root this all back in the book of Ruth and with the table, Boaz, last week we read this, Boaz promised Ruth that he would serve as her kinsman redeemer. He was promising to rescue her from a life of poverty and want. Now, we may not fully recognize our poverty and want, but we are just as bad off as Ruth was. Any of the lost are as bad off as Ruth was. And so Jesus promises to rescue those 
that put their trust in him. He fulfilled every aspect of the kinsman redeemer that I went through, all four elements of that. Let me run through them again. First, he rescued us from bondage to sin. That was the role of a kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament, to buy people out of their bondage. He seeks vengeance upon those that held us in unrighteous bondage, just as the avenger of blood. We, through Christ, have a glorious inheritance, one which Paul in Romans 8 attempts to explain and just goes off using words that are beautiful but fall short. He says, we cannot imagine what it will be like in heaven. And so this is our inheritance. And also, as the perpetuation of the line, we will be his bride. We will take his name in marriage. He will rescue us, call us his own, provide for us, and protect us. And all of this we remember and we look forward to in the table. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this beautiful illustration of all that Jesus has done for us and just these righteous laws that existed in the Israelite nation. Uh, we thank you, Father, that you are the Father of just laws in addition to promising us future security in heaven, uh, permanence uh, in heaven with you. You grant us this hope of better life on earth. And so we thank you, Lord, for all that Christ has done. In his name we pray. Amen.